This is episode 228 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners like you who join our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. And stay tuned after the episode for more details about what's inside. Which is the phrase we all use nowadays, oh my God. We all say, oh my God. But that's something that in the 16th century would have got you into a lot of trouble. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Today's episode comes with a small content warning. We are going to be talking about offensive language from Shakespeare's lifetime, and that's going to include saying the curse words that were real for Shakespeare's lifetime. There's at least one mention of a curse word in today's show that is also offensive for our modern ears. So if you're listening with younger audiences, listener discretion is advised. Forsooth and by the saints, we are exploring curse words today from Shakespeare's lifetime. The changeover from Catholic to Protestant England may have changed the way people worshipped, but it didn't change the strongly religious influence over the English language, including exactly what qualified as a swear word. Today, our guest, John Spur, joins us to help us explore all the expressions of emphasis, oath, and cursing that appear in Shakespeare's plays, so that we can tell the difference between a curse word and a solemn oath, as well as understand the history behind why those phrases are there, what they mean, and what kinds of words were considered bad language for Shakespeare's lifetime. John Spur is Emeritus Professor of History at Swansea University, UK. He is the author of numerous books on 17th century British history and has been working on a study of early modern oaths and swearing since the 1980s. Find more information about Dr. Spur as well as links to his work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Lovely to be here. Thank you. What curse words were the most popular for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, that's a quite a complicated question. Directly, it's words like God damn me and God damn you and God's blood and God's heart and God's light, and God's life. If faith, by my troth, those are the kind of phrases that are used all around Shakespeare in real life and on stage. But your question really raises a couple of bigger issues and one is the phrase curse word see that seems to me to be a modern american english in british english we'd say something like swear words or profanity and in some ways there is a difference between a profane oath and a curse there's a chap in england in essex in the 1606 i think it was who got into terrible trouble because he told the church wardens that by God he would be avenged upon them and then he bade a pox upon them he cursed them in other words he brought God's judgment down upon them but he also swore by God's name so that's one issue the other issue is when you say which is the most popular how do we know because we don't have a kind of survey of what people said 
we rely on Shakespeare's plays. That's one of the most common ways in which we can find the language of the time. And we also have the problem really, really of we don't have very many records of ordinary speech, except now and again in, ch in church courts and other rather exceptional legal cases where people are prosecuted for what's called defamation, where they criticise others. And that's often where they criticise other people's sexual behaviour. So they call someone a whore or a whoreson. And it's um, as much about undermining their credibility as citizens and as neighbours as it is about saying anything very rude. So it's really about uh, a language that is reflecting on people's integrity and trustworthiness and moral uh, respectability. But the answer to the question is, it's often swearing by God. So that'll be the one that gets you in the most trouble the most often from Shakespeare's lifetime. Yeah. So what about the the curse words or the profanities that we use today? Are they the same as what we see in the 16th century or did they have different? Because I know we use God as a curse word today as well. So are there others that cross the 400 year gap? That's a really interesting question because I'd have said up to now, you know, over the years when I've been asked that kind of question, I'd say, no, now all our swearing, all our profanities are about sex about bodily functions, about race increasingly. And there's very little that really matches what was said in 16th century England, where the swearing was very much but about God, and about the body of Christ and the body of God, if God had a body. So there's a really marked difference between the kind of swearing, even the profane swearing that people practised and were criticised for in the 16th century, compared to the modern sort of swearing by you know, about race or, or sex. However, I did begin to think that the strange exception to that rule, which is the phrase we all use nowadays, oh, my God. We all say OMG. We all say, oh, my God. But that's something that in the 16th century would have got you into a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think that because that phrase, I mean, I know for for me, I'm I'm rather religious, so I don't use that phrase myself, but it is very, very common and it's all in the everyday vernacular and it's not even offensive as a as a phrase out, outside of you know church going circles. And so it's really interesting to think that if you were to just say that offhandedly in Shakespeare's lifetime, that you really would have been in some hot water for what you, you were invoking there. You would, exactly. Are there any profanities we have today that might have been in that vein of ordinary, non-offensive words for the 16th century that today would be offensive to say? Does, are there any that have flipped the other way? Not many. There are words that began life Outside the religious context, so a word like bloody, which we don't use as much as we used to use, but which is was a common word in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, which many people thought had a religious connotation, but does seem to have none whatsoever for linguistic experts. It seems to be what's called an intensifier. So lots of the words that were curse words today, or until recently, would not have been words that were part of the, the vocabulary of if you like, bad language in, in the 16th century. What we do find is that words which we now find very rude, you know, the F word, for instance, would be part of the natural language. Perhaps the, 
the kind of vulgar language, but not the offensive language of the 16th century. So in other words, you end up with people talking about uh, swiving, as they called it, or about fucking, and yet they don't necessarily get into trouble for it. There's a, a famous case where a man is involved in, he's caught in flagrantio in a, an alehouse committing adultery, and he says he's going to continue to do what he's doing by God, even if the king came. And he gets into trouble, not because of what he's doing, but because he references by God, that's a blasphemy, and he's offensive to the king. But the use of, the liberal use of, of the F word doesn't seem to get him into any trouble whatsoever. I just keep thinking of like the Hayes office and all of the restrictions that it was in my lifetime that the F word started to be used in film more regularly. And when I was much younger, that was like the ultimate, you know, sin that a movie could commit uh, was to include that word. And it would take it from obviously from PG-13 to R if you included that. And then so (laughs) to think that he's just throwing this word around and and what are they offended by well they're they're offended that he insulted the king not not that he's using yeah, these exactly. profanities but, but, but there is the equivalent because in 1606 an act in restraint of the players was passed which was deliberately designed to prevent and, and i can quote you if you like for anyone in any stage play interlude show pageant to jestingly or profanely speak or use the holy name of God or of Christ Jesus or of the Holy Ghost or of the Trinity, which are not to be spoken but with fear and reverence. And if a player did use the name of God, they were opening themselves to a £10 fine, and that was a huge sum. Now, the point about this is it's famous for Shakespearean scholars because it, there's some evidence that it led to printed versions of some plays that we don't have before the first folio in 1623 being censored by the printer or by Shakespeare himself. So in other words, some of the swearing, the use of God's name was taken out uh, simply in response to that potential threat of prosecution. Though there are very few, if any, prosecutions before in the early 17th century, that act is used mainly in the early 18th century, a century later. Now, you alluded earlier to there being a difference between a profanity and an oath. So mark out the, the lines of demarcation here. Where, where does a profanity end and an oath begin? What's the difference there? Well, that's a, that's a very, good, very good question. because The theory is very clear, but the practice was very unclear. In theory, an oath is calling God to support or witness to the truth of what you say. So when you say... I'm going to give my evidence, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is a solemn oath, and that's a, an oath that is largely supported by the, the, the Bible and biblical teaching, uh, though there are some queries. Uh, some argue that Christ also included the injunction to not use oaths, but that's an oath that is solemn and is used in court and is used when people swear allegiance to the king or the queen. It's an oath that is taken, in theory at least, with great seriousness. And you don't break that oath unless you are very much, well, unless you, you, you're prepared to risk eternal damnation. A profanity is when you say, I caught a fish this long. By God, it was the best fish I ever caught. So you're using the name of God in a vain, trivial way, which again is, there are lots of biblical texts which say the use of, the name of God should only be, well, should not be taken in vain. I mean, it goes back, obviously, to 
what the Protestants call the third commandment of the, of the Ten Commandments. So in some ways, it's a very straightforward, if you use God's name to support a lie or an exaggeration or something trivial, that's a profane oath. If you use God's name to support your evidence in court, that's a solemn oath. But the problem is, of course, is the two intersect constantly. And there's always the danger that people will commit perjury. They'll swear something to be true when they're not sure about it and therefore take God's name in vain and potentially bring down eternal damnation upon themselves and certainly mislead a court or you know, witnesses or whatever it may be where they're giving evidence. So it's, a, it's, it's really to do with the, the web of solemn oaths which underpin social and political life in 16th century England. So what about the phrase swearing? Now, you mentioned that there's a, a difference between, you know, curse words and swear words between American English and British English. So what about the 16th century and yeah. how they defined offensive language? Was the word swearing applied to offensive language? Or when someone said you're swearing an oath, was this considered a, a noble activity? Well, they use the same term for both. But there is a say, uh, you know, there is this this sort of adjective profane so there's an act passed in 1624 a little bit after Shakespeare's death but it grows out of the same Puritan ideology that has supported the 1606 act in restraint of stage play blasphemy and that act is against profane swearing and cursing so swearing is used to describe profane swearing as in taking God's name in vain but also swearing is used when you swear your oath of allegiance, where you swear your oath in court. So the term is used by both groups. And what really matters is whether you think there are some people, and there are some people, who are so concerned with the sanctity of the oath that they won't take any oath unless they're really forced to, and some won't take any oath at all. So later in the 17th century, the Quakers refused to take all oaths and that's one of the ways in which they mark themselves out. They say, Christ says in the Gospel of Matthew, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And so they are completely opposed to swearing oaths. Others, of course, will be and were famously very slippery about their oaths. They take some oaths with uh, more than a pinch of salt and they'd break oaths. And they'd also sometimes be asked to do that by the state. Because one of the things that happens through the Reformation and the 16th and 17th centuries, is the state increasingly asks ordinary citizens to swear oaths of allegiance, oaths of loyalty to the changing regimes, to the Reformation, the Tudors and, their new, and Henry VIII's succession of queens. And this causes some people, Thomas More is a good example, huge scruples of conscience. They cannot square with their conscience swearing an oath, the solemn oath, when they'd already sworn a solemn oath that, if you like, they were now being asked to repudiate. So swearing means both things simultaneously, and both refer fundamentally to the belief that God is part of you know, the universe, in which the moral universe which we, which we inhabit. Now, I know in the 1550s, there was a preacher who took a preacher's oath. Could you explain to us what that was about and how it fits into our understanding of swearing an oath? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things, I think you're referring to Robert Crowley, uh, and one of the things that he does is he's, he's part of this literature, which we use a great deal to find out how people did perhaps swear, because he's criticising what people said. And what he says is, you know, there are problems that 
this is a, a thing called the a tract called the blasphemous swearer. So it's a, it's a, a, a sort of an attempt to sort of expose to readers what swearing does, the risks you take, because the the preachers often say swearers gain little by swearing and they risk their eternal life. And he says, some swear, this is about 1550, some swear by God's nails, his heart and his body, and some swear by his flesh, his blood and his foot, and some by his guts, his life and heart root. And others would seem all swearing to refrain, and they invent idle oaths, such as their idle brain, by cock and by pie and by the goose wing, by the cross of the mouse foot and by St. Chicken. And some swear by the devil, such as their blindness. What Crowley's criticizing is the idea that people feel they can, if you like, avoid the danger of a, of, of a profane oath, a swearing by God, if they swear by a made up word, in other words, by euphemism or by one of the things that, that are called creatures, things that God has created. And the preachers like Crowley are very clear you cannot get off the hook by swearing something as a euphemism. And it's one of the refrains throughout the, the early modern period that, that there are, if you like, sort of people who are so simple-minded that they think if they say God's bodykins or some other euphemism, they're somehow not swearing. Whereas the preachers say, yes, you are swearing, you are disguising your intent, but you are offending God by taking his name in vain, even though you've wrapped it up in this rather sort of, uh, this rather kind of uh, euphemistic language. So, well, what was the purpose behind using profanities in Shakespeare's lifetime? I mean, were these just expressions of emphasis or were people intentionally trying to provide a, a shock value? Like we said about the well, films earlier, where you're, you're putting this word in there because you want a different rating. Was there a motive yeah. or? Yeah. I think you're right. I think that one of the things that they are doing is they are trying to shock. There's clearly a sense that you want to show that you belong. There's a lot of criticism of swearing as the kind of thing that apprentices and men about town go in for. In other words, if you go to the tavern and you want to join in and be, be greeted by your, your fellow sort of adolescents and young men, you would join in the swearing. At the same time, if you wanted to mark yourself out as a godly person, as someone who was, for instance, one of the Puritan wing of the, of the Church of England, you would avoid both swearing and the company of swearers. And then, of course, there's the great question, which is the, the hangover of the Reformation. There are people who swear by the mass and by my lady. And those, of course, are references to terms, the Virgin Mary and the Catholic Mass, that go back before the Protestant Reformation in England. So in some ways, even into the 17th century, people are signalling or perhaps revealing their connections to the older form of, of Christianity that had been supplanted by the Reformation. So in many ways, it's about belonging or about marking yourself out as part of a group, as well, of course, as, you know, to some extent, being just a good, as Hotspur says in Henry the Fourth, Part One, a good mouth-filling oath. You can't underestimate the the pleasure when people are drinking, and that's often part of this profane world, drinking or gambling of a good mouth-filling oath. There's something about getting things off your chest, or you know, showing that you've uh, you you really mean what you say. So that is certainly used as I think it always has been as a way of emphasising what you say. 
Now, you mentioned that the Puritans would use their speech or lack of swear words in particular to set themselves apart from the tavern going folk. So I wonder if there was a class distinction among the kinds of oaths that people would take. Could you tell which station in society people were a part of by how they spoke? Well, you, you could. There's a, there's a sort of proverb that people were, that people swore like a lord. In other words, it was one of the ways in which the upper classes, the aristocrats, the people, the squires, the people, the gentry, if you like, were marked out, that they were disdainful of, if you like, the, the, the conventional pious or, or polite language. And so they became, as it were, famous for their willingness to swear. Now, I think it's as much about some things like gender as it is about class. So you, you find, for instance, that in, even in Shakespeare, there's a, a lot of emphasis upon how women will swear more daintily. They'll swear forsooth or, you know, in my troth, by my troth, that they'll swear in a more genteel way as it seems, or a more uh, restrained way than men. So it is something that's very strongly associated with with males. It's not simply aristocratic, well-born males, though though it is often those who who lead, but you find in army camps and the the people who rode on the Thames, the the, the, the watermen, they were famous for their swearing. So Perhaps in many ways, it's part of the way in which sort of the working class and the upper class kind of asserted their freedom from what we might call bourgeois or middle class responsibilities and, and pieties. They certainly, you were, if you went down the Thames on a, a skiff, you were likely to be met with a volley of kind of obscenities and, and profanities from the, the, the people rowing you. I think the other issue, which is, is, is clear, is that, again, it goes back to the way in which people took a cue from, if you like, the, the top of society. So Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, was famous for saying God's death and God's wounds whenever she was wanting to make a, uh, an assertion or, or make a point. She was very uh, free with her, her sort of her swearing. I don't really think of Elizabeth as being as being someone who would swear. I'm surprised by that. I would have thought she would be very against such kinds of oaths, which which brings me to a question about what her laws were while she was leading the country. I mean, Elizabethan government is is famous for their policing of everyday things. They would tell you about what you could wear or when you had to go to church and where, as well as what you had to eat on certain days. So did these kinds of sumptuary laws extend to the speech such that some oaths or offensive phrases would have actually been considered unlawful? Well, not in Elizabeth's day, because one of the things that is very common, people are being prosecuted at a local level by the community. In other words, the JPs and the church wardens, those with responsibility for policing communities, they were often prosecute people, but they weren't using statute law. So there weren't any act of parliament until the 1620s, so a little after Shakespeare's death, but, but growing out of the same direction of travel. So the laws of the 1620s, and again in the late 17th century and in, into the 18th century, are they, they impose a fine, they impose a, a 12p or 12 penny fine for every oath sworn. And if you couldn't, if you were too 
young, you got whipped, or if you were too poor, you got put in the stocks. But that kind of legislation only happened just a little bit after Shakespeare's time. But the pressure behind it, part of it was Puritan. It was to do with trying to make England a more Protestant and pious kind of nation. A part of it was to do with the sort of what's called the reformation of manners, the, the attempt to police communities. And you do end up with, you know, women, men of all kinds being prosecuted. There's a, there's a great story in 1606 in Essex, a woman called Margaret Jones was presented to the JPs for really for disturbing the peace. That was the, and, but the accusation reads, she was presented, reported for a swearer using most cursed oaths as namely God's wounds, God's heart, and being reproved by the minister, the clergyman, she replied saying, God's heart, she would swear in spite of his teeth. And as she used much swearing, so she laid violent hands and smote the minister. He reproving her for swearing, and she followed him swearing most devilishly from one end of the town to the other. So in other words, this Margaret Jones had been told off for swearing, saying God's heart and God's wounds, and had so annoyed the minister that he told her off and she responded by more swearing and by violence. Very often in these accusations of bad language at the local community level, in the, the local church courts or the, the JPs, they are caught up with, if you like, troublemaking, with drinking, with unruliness, with a refusal to sort of live by the, the conventions of, of, of what's often a very small and rather sort of... Uh, heavily policed like community in other words people keep an eye on each other and if you step out of a line start using this kind of language you will get prosecuted and of course you, know, you might end up in the stocks well i know we would love to explore the history of profanities and swear words from shakespeare's lifetime further especially some of these stories that you've mentioned to us and the linguistic history about how did they develop into curse words in the first place what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to start with when we want to explore further well i think you know there are one or two books that that try and give you a sense there's a, a book by um Shirley called um, Swearing and Perjury in Shakespeare's Play by Francis Shirley. It's a great book to start with. It's an older book. It uh, might be difficult to get hold of, but they're also very, very helpful books that are bigger studies uh, of, of the history of swearing. And there's a fantastic book by John Kerrigan called Shakespeare's Binding Language, which really discusses play by play the way that this whole language issue is involved in the characters and the plots of Shakespeare's plays because vows, pledges, oaths are fantastic devices for creating a plot and you know whether it's Othello or um, Lear, once you're committed to a plot, to a, a course of action by an oath, you then often have a, a whole series of, of plot consequences. So it's a very, very good place to start. But of course, in many ways, the best place to start are the plays of Shakespeare and the plays of Ben Jonson a little bit later, because, you know, if I can mention Johnson, Johnson is very interested in, in this kind of bad language, in every man in his humour and uh, Bartholomew Fair. You'll see a lot of the same issues. Those are excellent places to begin. Thank you for those. We will link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode, so make sure you go there to find those. Now, John, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. 
Uh, this is this is difficult. I so what I've plumped for, I think, is is a book written between the 1570s and the 1590s in France, Michel de Montaigne's essays. And these are essays that I think you could dip into. It's a, a, a fantastically large book in its final version, but it's full of shorter essays you can dip into, which will get you thinking. This chap, Montaigne, is doing in what many people think Shakespeare's doing with a character like Hamlet. He's beginning to create that modern sense of self, that notion of interiority, that notion that we begin to look at ourselves more than the outside world. So although it's a fascinating account of all sorts of parts of 17th, the 16th century life, it's also the beginnings of uh, a new introspection. And so I think that will keep me occupied, both historically and perhaps, you know, it'd be good for my, my soul too. Lots of things to chew on there with that book, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, like everyone else, you know, I have one project which I've been going on for years, which is this one about swearing and oaths, and I must get on with that. But I'm also working on a study about the language of wit in the 17th century. Wit is one of the ways in which people mark themselves out as being more sophisticated, more articulate, more more nuanced than perhaps uh, some of their peers. But it's also a language that you find underpinning a lot of the the aesthetic and moral decision-making of the 17th century. So one of the ways in which I wanted to try and discover what people in the 17th century thought about wit is through plays, but also through writings and indeed through some of the the bad behaviour of the wits, who were some of them famous for for being a little bit uh, naughty. So it's a study of 17th century wit. That sounds exciting. We'll look forward to seeing that. John Spur, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of profanities and swear words for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see pictures of the 1606 Act Against Players Using Bad Language in Their Plays, as well as more history around that Act of Parliament passed in 1624 to prevent swear words being used, then be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you can see visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about today, along with links to connect with our guest and see the resources John Spur recommends you use to learn more about profanities from Shakespeare's lifetime. Find all of these things at at CassidyCash.com slash episode 228. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP228. If you're a huge fan of our show and you like learning about Shakespeare's history here with us each week, then please consider supporting our show by joining our listener community on Patreon. Patrons get access to bonus content, including that Shakespeare film library, where you can watch video versions of the podcast, animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films from us, as well as partnering history organizations that have donated documentaries to our library, along with special patron extras available at our higher tiers, like access to to digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club. You can find all of these benefits and explore further as well as sign up right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Our show this week is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash, and our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.